0: This athletic podcast, Going Up, Going Down, is brought to you by Bet365, which is the world's favorite online betting company. By downloading the Bet365 app, you can access both pre-match and in-play markets, along with instant match updates for all games. And the Bet365 Bet Builder allows you to make personalized bets via the app, so you can bet on multiple scenarios and create your own bet with unique odds right there in your hands. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sports betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and Apple's App Store. Over 18s only, please gamble responsibly. Welcome to this week's Going Up, Going Down podcast, brought to you by The Athletic. We're focusing on all things EFL, and we are Ali Maxwell and George Ellick, who's the Jake Livermore to my Remain Sawyers. Now, this week, we've got the same as always, three key fixtures previewed from across the three divisions, a hot take from George, an EFL rewind from myself, Middlesbrough, the club in focused, and some of this week's headlines in not the back page as well. We're going to start with the big fixtures in this weekend's slate. Let's get into the weekend preview.
1: Yeah, all of our podcasts are completely free. All the athletic podcasts are completely free, and ad free versions are available to subscribers. There's so much content there. Whatever kind of football you like, make sure you have a look through the articles, have a look through the podcasts too. And you can sign up now and get a 40% discount by going to theathletic.com forward slash (laughs) EFL pod. So as ever, the first segment of this Going Up, Going Down podcast are the games of the weekend starting... That's what it's all about. ...in the Championship. The games coming up this weekend. We've had a full slate of fixtures in the Championship. And I have chosen Blackburn against Swansea for the game of the Ooh. weekend in the Championship. Blackburn... Bit, bit of a hipster choice, this one? Not at all. What's caught your eye here? Just that, that area of the Championship at the moment as I think, probably... Not the most interesting because we've got a title race. We've got an automatic promotion race. We've got a relegation battle. But we've also got a very exciting battle for those last couple of playoff places. I mean, you could argue the whole playoff area is is up for grabs at the moment. Um, I'll run through quickly the table so we know that. Starting with Fulham in third, who are on 60 points. Nottingham Forest, 59 points. Brentford, 56 points alongside Preston on the same number. Bristol City, 53. Blackburn, 52. Swansea, 51. So, as you can see, certainly both Brentford and Preston are within sight for both Blackburn and Swansea, who are currently occupying eighth and ninth. And I've written down in my notes here um, for Blackburn, I've written more than just this. (laughs) But but the first note just says Tony Mowbray is doing the Lord's work at at Ewood Park. Really? And it's hard to really say anything otherwise. What he's doing there, to contextualise it a little bit, the injury problems that they've had. I mean coming into the season alone, I think they finished 15th last season, yeah. which was a, a decent effort for a side coming up from League 1. And players the player churn in the summer wasn't necessarily massive. They didn't they kept Bradley Dack, which was crucial. But looking at their squad, there was no reason for them to drastically improve upon that 15th place finish. They lost Dack to injury in December at a time where they were in a similar kind of lower mid-table role. Since then, they've also had injuries to deal with to Corey Evans, to Lewis Holtby, to Derek Williams, to Joe Rothwell. But throughout that time of players, especially in creative roles, being injured, they've gone from strength to strength. They've lost just one game in their last nine. That was at home to Fulham in a game they actually played very well in. They got a brilliant draw at Griffin Park where they, where they led 2 0 uh, with Adam Armstrong scoring two of those goals. He is the player who probably is grabbing the headlines at the moment who's really come to the fore he's scored 5 goals in his last 9 games he's never been a striker who's particularly prolific but always a player who anyone who knows him anyone who's seen him play or played with him is convinced of his talent and has the England youth caps to to show for it mm. just 23
0: i think i saw the other day he's just passed 200 senior games and just passed 50 senior goals as well so it's a lot of, yeah. a, a, lot of a lot of mileage on him already
1: a lot a lot of loan spells out of newcastle before making that permanent move to Blackburn, but I think the, the players I want to focus on here, and the key players, in my opinion, are those who are unsung. A player that you like very much, Ali and Lewis Travis, is I think, is probably one of the breakout stars of the Champions, championship so far this season. A very good footballer, someone who can do the running for the more experienced players alongside him that at times has been Bradley Johnson a player whose quality is undoubted at this level who's got that experience to go alongside it but maybe not the legs and of course Stuart Downing who either plays on the right hand side cutting onto his favoured left foot or plays in that withdrawn midfield role alongside Travis Downing is the key creator of this side there's no doubt about that he's got seven assists this season and even though Dak has been the goal scorer I would say that Downing is the one who stepped into that mantle of being the talisman. He's the player who they now turn to for creative responsibility, for making things happen. But two other players who I think don't necessarily get the, the, you know, the credit they deserve are Daryl Lenehan and Tosin Adrobio. They're the two centre-backs upon which this whole team is basically built upon. Two very, very solid centre-backs. Lenehan's been doing it for a long time. Adrobio is a player who is 22 years old and is really coming to the fore this season. Tony Mowbray had to do all of this without the players that I've mentioned. Rothwell is returning to fitness at the moment, which is a positive. Holtby will hopefully be doing so soon, but there'll be no Dak until the end of the season. And even in midweek, they showed again against Stoke and a nil-nil draw that they are, a side there on merit. They're not there by chance. They're not a flash in the pan. They dominated the game. They deserve to win. They'll be frustrated that they came up against the Jack Butland of old. The Butland did throw in one mistake, which they put into the back of the net, but it was offside. So without Jack Butland there, Coming up against a keeper, maybe a little bit less inspired, that have come away from that game with three points as well. So, basically, aside in the form of the decade they've been in. They're in the best possible situation they could be in with a manager who's got a team really purring and a nice balance throughout the side of solid defensive players, a decent midfield and an attacking player in Adam Armstrong who's really on top of his game and has the talent to go alongside it. So Mowbray
0: doing the Lord's work, spreading the good word of patience, of good man management, developing the players at your disposal over just buying tons and tons of players. What about the team they're up against this weekend? Where do you rank Swansea at the moment?
1: Well, this is really difficult because if... If we took a selection of Swansea fans after Steve Cooper had been appointed, Steve Cooper, this is his his first senior management job, his first club management job. And if you told them in mid-July that they would be sitting in ninth position on the 27th of February, they'd have been absolutely delighted with that. They lost Graham Potter in the summer. They lost Dan James in the summer. They lost Olly McBurney in the summer. They didn't necessarily replace them with anything up to the standard they'd have wanted to. Borja Habaston was brought in early on in the season, a player who'd been basically cast aside. He's no longer there. And in midweek, we saw another performance that was full of, I mean, I want to say guts and some quality at Craven Cottage. And they came away from that game losing 1-0. Anyone who hasn't seen the game from last night, I would recommend that you watch the highlights. Pretty much immediately because Andre Ayu was fouled twice in the second half in the in the box, nothing given. He his the picture and the video of him screaming up at the clouds is somewhat iconic in my mind after watching the highlights. Fulham go the other end and awarded a very, very soft penalty. Freddie Woodman, the Swansea keeper, saves the penalty, makes another incredible save from the rebound. Only for Conor Gallagher to break up the other end of the pitch for Swansea. I think he's fouled by Joe Bryan and then Alexander Mitrovic makes amends for his miss a minute later in the 94th minute and winning 1-0. And it kind of feels like that sums up Swansea at the moment. They're a side who, when they play badly, are beaten and when they play well, can't really seem to get over the line. They brought in very key, well, very good calibre young players in on loan in January. Conor Gallagher, I mentioned, Guehi as well from Chelsea, Ryan Brewster from Liverpool. And it seems A little bit strange, maybe, to bring in three players in on loan on January after you've had a decent start to the season who aren't your own players to develop. Because realistically, they need to either bring through their own talent here or they need to try and get into the playoffs. But I think that this relationship that Cooper has due to his history in the England youth set up means that these kind of relationships, these kind of loan players coming in for the long term future of the club under Cooper can only be a good thing. They're pretty reliant on a few individual players. Andre Ayu in the final third, Matt Grimes in the middle, Joe Roden at the back, and Freddie Woodman, another one who's been a a revelation in goal. But again, crucially, he isn't their players. He he isn't their player. They've only won one in their last seven, but that four-all draw that we saw the other night on a Friday night at Hull seems to have triggered a bit of focus. It was a bizarre game that It felt a bit like a pre-season friendly. Someone even tweeted us saying it looked like a testimonial. A a four-all bore draw, if, if, if that's possible. And since then, they returned with a 3 1 decent win against Huddersfield and an improved display at Craven Cottage as well. So I do think that there are signs that this Swansea side are not a lost cause by any means, but they come up against a side here in Blackburn who are bang in form and bang on top of their game. And it's a really, really difficult place to go. I don't think it's going to be easy for Blackburn to win it. I think they're the most likely winners. But if I was going to go for a prediction, I'm going to say a low scoring draw one all draw okay
0: a one all draw I feel like a lot of our weekend preview games when you research both teams and you understand their strengths and weaknesses generally we're picking interesting games between teams close together in the table the one all draw is a is a popular pick see see where I go with the fence sitting pick yeah exactly let's see where I end up with uh, Coventry against Sunderland This this is in league one And this is my favourite of the three EFL divisions by far at the moment. You've mentioned, to be fair, a quite compelling reason for the championship to be one of the more exciting divisions across Europe at the moment, with a title race, with a battle for automatics, a battle for playoff, a battle for relegation. But the League One promotion battle for me is the most compelling thing in the EFL at the moment. It hasn't slowed up at all. If anything, it's getting more chaotic, more exciting and less clear. And it's because there's a group of teams, a big group of teams, who are just kicking on and picking up points to a huge degree. Rotherham and Coventry at the top are doing about as well as you possibly can. And yet they're not pulling clear like you would normally expect because Sunderland, Portsmouth, Peterborough, Fleetwood, they're on the march. Wickham are still there uh, in the playoff places. Oxford have won three in a row as well. In fact, Wickham are the only side in the top ten to lose against a team not in the top 10 uh, in the last six or seven weeks. That was away at, at MK Don. So this group of teams has has broken out and they are all very, very good for the level. They're only taking points off each other, basically. And, and that's why games against each other really could be the key factor here. Uh, Coventry and Sunderland have picked up uh, an insane amount of points in the last two months. Sunderland, 32 points from 15 games. Coventry, 30 from just 13 games. But it is a big game because if Kov can beat Sunderland on the weekend, there'll be six points clear of them with a game in hand. You'd say that might be an insurmountable gap uh, for Sunderland to, to, to close. And if they lose to Sunderland, they'll be level on points, albeit having a game in hand. This one's live on on Sky Sports on Sunday as well. And hopefully there'll be plenty of people tuning in to see, I think, what'll be a really interesting game. I don't think it's going to be a very high-scoring game, sadly, because they're the two best defensive teams in the league.
1: It sounds like you're setting yourself up for a one-all draw prediction here.
0: Just wait and see. (laughs) Just wait and see. And both teams play three at the back and both teams' systems have really got the best out of the defensive units. Um, Coventry managed to get four central midfield players basically in their team it's 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 almost a 3-6-1 formation which is pretty damn exciting and makes me really love Mark Robbins. But they basically got two deep central midfielders and two more advanced in that sort of number 10 role. All of them good ball players, all of them comfortable and confident when receiving it in in tight spaces. Coventry will try to play through the centre of the pitch, try and get it into those two number 10s who will then look to either slip a ball through to Matt Godden, their number nine, or play it outside to the wing-backs if there's no space in the middle. And that's where Darbo and McCallum uh, have, have pretty good delivery. But Sunderland's defence are seriously robust, and I think they will make it very, very difficult for Coventry to play through the middle, to have any joy through there. Sunderland, much less comfortable on the ball from the back. Um, they will look to, to play it forward with a bit more directness, with a bit more speed. The, the key for Sunderland, really, is that in Chris Maguire and Lyndon Gooch... They probably do have the two players who could provide the best individual moments of quality in this game. Um, They both play the inside forward roles in a a 3-4-3 or a 3-4-2-1, depending on how you like to describe it. Gooch and Maguire link really well with the fullbacks, 0-9 and Denver Hume, who have really kicked on under Phil Parkinson. There's a few players in this team who Parkinson is getting the best out of, in contrast to how they were playing under Jack Ross, and and certainly those wing-backs are two of them. You could argue Maguire and Gooch are as well, because their output in the last few weeks has been exceptional. A bit like that Charlton-Luton game last week, I do think one of the key factors here are the two strikers. We know that the teams will defend well. We know that they both have different strengths in terms of building attacks and building chances. And often that means in a low-scoring game, it will simply come down to... Well, let's say both teams have one or two good chances. Who will finish those? And Godden versus Wyke. Wyke, certainly the better at hold-up play, certainly better in the air, certainly a better target man, but Godden, undeniably the better finisher. Um, In terms of XG this season, they actually pretty much have the exact same amount of chances created for them, but Godden's conversion stats, much better. He's converting his chances at a better rate. So um, for me... The way I think this game will play out. Here we go. I can see it being nil-nil at half time, George.
1: Half time, full time tip here. Wow.
0: I think Coventry will put together one really nice attacking piece of attacking play that will end up in a one-nil Coventry. And then I think a bit of individual brilliance from Chris Maguire towards the end we will see this game end 1 1.
1: What a bizarrely <laughs> specific prediction that is. I've <laughs>
0: thought so much about this game that I haven't. They're going
1: to put together a really nice bit of attacking play early in the second yeah, half. It'll be, I love it.
0: It'll be a lengthy spell of possession. They'll work it well. It might be played out wise to one of the wing backs. He'll cut it back and someone will finish I f- it. I feel
1: like after this podcast, you and I should go down to the park and just reenact how this game is going to go. And then when it happens, we'll go viral.
0: Great bit of video content.
1: Okay, I'll be Chris Maguire. Um onto League two, then, after that I don't think I can really follow up um predicting phases of play in a match, but <laughs> Colchester hosts Cheltenham in league two sixth, hosting fifth colchester on fifty five points Cheltenham on sixty points, but crucially, Cheltenham have a game in hand on the team below them, so this is really an opportunity for the top five in league two to break away from the pack and we've spoken a little bit both on this podcast and on not the top twenty about. There being a top four in League Two. Four teams going to three places, Swindon, Crewexter and Plymouth. But we're in a position now where it has to be a conversation about the top five, with Cheltenham just two points behind Plymouth and six points off the top. I'm going to start by talking about the away team here. And I think that the job that Mike Duff is doing at Cheltenham is simply... I mean, it goes... You're almost speechless Well, It it just goes completely unnoticed. He came in about a year ago to a side who are struggling at kind of the bottom region. I think they were bottom when he arrived, you know? Unbelievable. Mm. And what he's done to that side in a year without a massive churn of players is absolutely stunning. And they are in a position now where they have won four games in a row. They're getting themselves into position to have a real go automatic promotion. It would take a massive fall for them now not to reach that. And the the personnel and the way that he's going about his business is so impressive. And there's a reason why you know, the form for the first Six months of the season was great, but I think there are quite obvious reasons why they're playing so well at the moment. Alfie May's arrival from Doncaster in January is clearly one of those reasons. He scored five goals already in in his first 10 games, but that's just basically a fraction of what he offers. His pace, the way that he can turn a defence, his industry up top, playing alongside a veteran in Luke Varney is a proper uh, strike partnership that we don't really see too much and is a handful for any defence to, to come up against. Varney, of course, had his injury problems, as did Boyle, who plays on the left-hand side of a back three. His return from injury has also been very, very important to the way that they play. And it's just such a balanced side with that back three of Boyle, Tozer and Raglan, so, so solid. The left foot of Chris, H- Chris Hussey, meaning they've got brilliant set-piece delivery and a brilliant outlet on the left-hand side of midfield. Broom and Doyle Hayes are two midfielders I really, really like. 23 years old and 21 years old. Very, very creative in the middle of the park. And then, of course, we have the two I was talking about in Varney and May with Ruben Reed, not a bad option as well if one of them isn't firing. It's not a particularly deep squad, but it's a a side that under Duff is starting to show qualities. It makes you think they really could get promotion out of this league, and rightly so. Mm. We had them down as a dark horse at the beginning of the season, but I think looking at the quality throughout their side now and the balance they have alongside their manager, there's no reason why they shouldn't be battling at the top end of of that division. With Colchester, it's a bit of a different story, where they are a side who we've expected, year on year really, to produce performances and results that would get them to the top end of the side and under John McGreal they've often put in performances yeah. amongst the very best in that division the players to look out for here a player that you like very much in Kwame Poku whose rise from non-league has been pretty incredible mm. and at 18 years of age he really is a live wire mm. on the right hand side it's quite a brilliant goal at, at Salford on the weekend as well which I recommend that you go and watch Courtney Senior, a player who on his day can be very impressive indeed, but he's been left out recently due to a a bit of a lack of form, which has opened the door for Poku to come in. And Theo Robinson is possibly the key to this Colchester side. He's never been particularly prolific, but you do feel like given the creative talent they have throughout the side maybe a goal scorer would be the thing to turn this Colchester United side from a top seven side into a top three side He's scored five goals in his last five games so if he could, they can get him firing then that would be very important to them as well but I'm still just not quite convinced by Colchester there always seems to be under McGreal the, the odd bad performance around the corner they went on a brilliant unbeaten run uh, a few weeks ago, I think it was 13 unbeaten, which ended in dramatic fashion against Cambridge. And since then, it's been a very good performance followed by a, a pretty poor one. And we think back to the, the 3-0 win they had against Plymouth a few weeks ago, which I think you called the best performance performance uh, of in League 2 this season the
0: best first half performance okay, I said okay. don't you, misquote you, you me you
1: and your you and your specifics again this
0: is how fake news gets spread rumours <laughs> like this the best first half display but
1: their home form their home form is very good they lost 3-2 at home last time out against Grimsby the resurgent Grimsby and that was their first loss at home since mid-October can you tell what I'm going to predict here
0: I think you're going to predict a a 1-0 Cheltenham win no it's going to be
1: a draw again (laughs) Uh, I think this Cheltenham team are very good but just because you win four games in a row even if you're playing at a high level that's not reason to win five in a row coming up up against a side who win most of their home games a lot of talent on show here a lot of young talent on show here as well Uh, and I think Duff is is the headline if I was a a League One or a Championship owner looking for an up and coming young manager he would be pretty top or pretty high on the list at least
0: yeah up the Duff indeed Thanks to our good pals at beer52.com, you have the opportunity to sip eight delicious, painstakingly sourced craft beers from around the world. All you need to do is go to www.beer52.com going and pay the postage of £4.95. And if that wasn't enough, as a listener of The Athletic podcasts, you'll get two extra free beers. So that's 10 free beers. Beer52 are beer pioneers. They travel the globe to find the best and most interesting beer from the very best craft breweries. They are now the world's most popular craft beer discovery club. Each month, Beer52 deliver you a case with a different theme. So far, themes have included Germany, Korea, Belgium, South Africa, California, New Zealand and many more. As an independent UK company, Beer52 are also passionate about the UK craft beer scene. The beauty of Beer52 is that you can leave anytime. The power is in your hands. Your case will also include the award-winning craft beer magazine, Ferment, and a beery snack is chucked in too. Just go to beer52.com forward slash going to get your case free. And don't forget... Right now, going up, going down listeners, get two extra free beers. A moment to look forward to, I think we can all agree. When George Ellick takes on a hot take, you've been waiting for a couple of weeks to get back on the mic with a hot take, George. How hot is it this week?
1: It's it's just a massive pet peeve of mine that comes in two parts. And it's something that we see from football fans in every stadium, across social media, every weekend. And it's something that is just factually incorrect. Ooh, it sounds pretty hot to and me. It comes, it comes in two parts. I'll, I'll give you two headlines and then we'll start at the top. So the main point is we see every fan of every side saying what we need is a 20 goal, a season striker. No, you don't. No, Some do. You might be right. A couple of teams out there will need that. will need someone. And it can't hurt. But that is not what you're after. That is not the key issue you have in your side. The next pet peeve, and the one that really bugs me, is when people say he's a striker, it's his job to score goals. Mm. We'll get on to that in a second. We'll so s-
0: any strikers listening are probably going to enjoy this segment.
1: For many strikers, their one and only job will be to score goals. I understand that. But the argument that a striker cannot be having a positive impact because he's not scoring is just completely moronic we'll start at the top now about the 20-goal-a-season strikers. And this comes at quite a difficult time to be doing this on an EFL podcast because we look back to last season in the Championship. Nine players in the Championship scored 20 goals or more last season. That is absolutely extraordinary. Frustratingly for me, when I did my research, the three promoted teams were Norwich, Sheffield United and Aston Villa, Timo Puki, Tammy Abraham, Billy Sharp, all scoring 20 or more goals. But then I realised every rule needs an exception. Uh-huh. And that is our exception here. Because if we delve into the depths of the EFL, you'll see that Please nine do. players scoring 20, 20 or more goals. That is just not normally the case. Take the championship, 17, 18. How many players score 20 or more? Three. Two. 16, 17, four. 15, 16, three. This is a tiny... If you think there are 24 teams in each division, that mm. is a tiny minority of sides who have a 20-goal-a-season striker. League one in 1819, 5, 1718, 2, 1617, 2. Wow. League two, 1819, 4, 1718, 5, 1617, 4, 1516, 4. So if you're thinking here that five is the most, that's out of what? Seven seasons, more than that, 10 seasons. Five is the most. So that is well under, now that's well under a, a quarter of teams who have a 20 goal a season striker. Of course, sometimes there can be strikers who their goal scoring exploits are so important to what they're doing we have a look now at swindon and owen doyle who have a striker who is so crucial to the way that they play so important to what they do 24 goals and 27 starts for swindon but is that because of doyle Richie Wellens made the point when Doyle went back to Brent, to Bradford that the reason why he was scoring goals was because of the system they play and their ability to, to create chances. That's
0: what it comes down to, I think, George, isn't it?
1: And if you look at Doyle himself, he's a player who scored five goals in 18 games for Bradford. He went back to Bradford in the middle of a season when he scored 24 goals in 27 starts and didn't score for four games. So the notion that he is, I mean, this is its, it's the, the narrative that says he is a player that guarantees goals that doesn't exist Mm. it might exist at the very very top level where you have sides who consistently create chances but what they mean is he is a player who in a good team will score you Mm. cannot put Owen Doyle in a bad side if you put Owen Doyle at Stevenage at the moment how many goals is he going to get in the season maybe 12 so stop asking for a 20 goal a season striker when what you're actually talking about is we need to be a team who can create chances for our striker to Mm. score now my team Oxford are an anomaly here because for for a the beginning of the season, we were a side creating chances and we had Jamie Mackey up front. So we needed a striker who could score goals and got one and Matt Taylor. But because we'd already changed the thing that we needed, which was to to, to create chances, that's the the crucial thing. If we look back at successful teams in the past, so many have not had that striker. Look at 2017-18 in the Championship. The three promoted sides were Wolves, Cardiff and Fulham. Wolves' top scorer was Hotter, not even a striker, 17 goals. Cardiff's was Patterson not even a striker, 10 goals. Fulham's with Sessegnor, not a striker, 15 goals. Corley Woodrow for Barnsley last season, the best attacking team I would say in the league. Woodrow with 16. Mm. So looking again now at sides who are this season performing at a high level, we have West Bromwich Albion, top scorers in the league, top scorer in the EFL. Hal Robson-Karner is their top scorer on 10 goals. He's never been a prolific goal scorer. Yeah. You've got a guy called Charlie Austin sitting on the bench, one of these players who apparently guarantees goals. There's a reason why he's not playing, and it's because Harry robson is a better fit. He's better for the team, and he will create, he will enable the team to create cons- consistent goal scoring chances as well. Blackburn, a similar story with Armstrong. Peterborough have Ivan Tony, who is, of course, one of these players who is just too good for League One level. But I would argue he does a hell of a lot more than the 20-odd goals he's going to score this season. Mm-hmm. Or, I mean, a lot more than that. But Rotherham are the side who are top of the league. They're the second-top scorers in the, in the division behind Tony. And they have Ladapo on 12 goals at the top. Who went, I mean, I'd be very surprised if he reached reaches 20 as well. They have 13 different scorers uh, in their side in, in, in their squad this season. West Brom have 17 different scorers. Wow. Varied threats. We then go down to Crewe, who are the second-highest scorers in the EFL this season. They have Chris Porter who's 36 uh, years old, playing up top. He's scored 11 goals this season. They've had 15 different scorers in their squad. He has been a 20-goal-a-season striker once in his career. He's 36 years old, and that was back in 2006, 2007 and for Oldham when he notched 21 League One goals. So he is not, again, a player who scores prolifically. So we've got Rotherham, West Brom and Crewe. The three most free scoring, three of the most free scoring teams in the EFL, three of the most successful, crucially, teams in the EFL, none of them playing with an out and out goal scorer up top. And you still get the kind of rhetoric around players like Billy Sharp, for example, who apparently is another one of these guys who, when you put him in a side, he's going to score goals. He has had so many barren spells in his career. He has five 20, uh, 20 plus seasons in his career out of 16. His first spell at Sheffield United, he couldn't hit a barn door playing in a playing in a poorer side, but the key here is just the misinformation and the misunderstanding of what a striker is there to do. If there are sides throughout the EFL who are picking up points regularly and scoring goals regularly without an out-and-out out goal scorer up front, that should be all the evidence you need to maybe stop telling the boards to get the, put their put their hand in their pocket to buy a two million pound striker. If you are adept at creating chances for a range of players throughout your squad, that is the key to success. Not having someone up top who is going to get to that elusive 20-goal mark, which apparently we all think we deserve to have a striker who will get there.
0: Expertly put forward to the court there, George. That is a real real thought-provoking hot take from you. And hopefully we'll hear from plenty listening especially if they disagree that's always quite interesting just so long
1: as Oxford put their hand in their pocket and buy Matt Taylor in the summer I don't <laughs> care So,
0: <laughs> at ntt20pod we're always very uh, keen to hear from you guys hear what you have to say and now it's not the back page these are EFL news stories from the week so far that we think are entertaining or interesting are notable and that potentially might have flown under your radar in what has been a busy week in sports news first of all we're going to go to Sunderland where Fleetwood drew 1-1 in midweek and of course Fleetwood manager is shrinking violet Joey Barton, uh, formerly a player of Newcastle United, and he enjoyed his trip to the Stadium of Light. Although Sunderland did score a late equaliser to deny his Fleetwood side what would have been a fantastic win, many Sunderland fans thought that Fleetwood, having taken the lead, uh, showed excessive, let's call it, game management. And Barton, after the game, was quick to douse the flames with petrol. Barton said, we're a miles better team than them, in my opinion, when it comes to passing the ball. We've seen that in the build-up. They'd absolutely drenched the pitch all day because they're scared of little old Fleetwood Town coming and outplaying them. It was very, very interesting as a former Newcastle player to see Sunderland, who were in the Premier League just three years ago, celebrate like they'd won the World Cup final, having scored an equaliser in stoppage time against the mighty Fleetwood Town. Now, given the form of both of these teams, there is a chance this could be a playoff fixture come May, which I think we would all like to see. Also in League One, uh, it's a new era for Wickham Wanderers. That's because they're under new ownership. The ownership of Rob Kuig was finally finalised last week. Kuig takes over from the fans who had been owning and running the club over the last few years, successfully in terms of stability, but they were finding it difficult to, uh, I guess, compete financially. And that's where Rob Kuig, it is hoped, will help to take the club forward. But despite it being a new era, they're heading into it with continuity in the dugout because Gareth Ainsworth, the longest serving manager in the EFL, has signed a new contract with the club, along with his assistant, Richard Dobson. Uh, Ainsworth, of course, has overseen phenomenal success and progression at the club, always on a tight budget and generally with very small squads. Now, they're in the playoff places, Wickham, so there's a chance, there is a chance, Ainsworth could be manager of Wickham in the Championship next season. The big test for me will be, if they don't make it, then how tough a job will it be to replicate this season's immense success again next year? It should be tough. But in Ainsworth, they have an inspirational, incredibly popular manager who is just such a part of the fabric at that club.
1: In Gaz, they trust.
0: They do, yeah. Wild thing, they call him.
1: And in Ollie Grimsby certainly trusts as well, because this is an extraordinary story, if anyone hasn't seen it before. An unprecedented story, I would say, with... Grimsby Tower majority shareholder John Fenty stepping back from day-to-day involvement at the club. And it's, you know, we haven't been told the exact role that Ian Holloway is going to have, but the the quote is to allow manager Ian Holloway to drive the club forward. Fenty said he will have more freedom and autonomy to shape on the field matters than any other manager within the English Football League. They said they'd never been more optimistic about the club's future, with Ollie's vast uh, experience he intends to drive the club forwards both on and off the field having special responsibilities as the director responsible for all football operations this is interesting because we've seen a move away from this kind of management I would say in recent times the the European model has started to filter its way into English football now with directors of football being brought in to basically be the boss between the chairman or owner And the manager. What Grimsby are doing here is basically giving Ian Holloway, who has invested some of his own money into the club, he has moved his family to Grimsby in order to be closer to it. He has invested so much already. I mean, anyone who hasn't read, we we plugged it on here a couple of weeks ago, but anyone who hasn't read the Ian Holloway interview uh, on The Athletic should do so right away because it's so enlightening as to just how much he is investing emotionally, financially into Grimsby, a a club who I would say have some of the same quirks as the man himself.
0: There's always been a lot of talk about the gap between the Championship and the Premier League and the money at the top of the game and how that is causing the gap to grow and make it harder for teams to go up and stay up in the Championship. But as Simon writes, as George has written already for The Athletic as well, the gap between the League One and the Championship is arguably larger, teams finding it even tougher uh, to establish themselves as Championship teams having come up from League One. It's definitely worth a read. It's a thought-provoking piece. Uh, You can read it on the Athletic website. Search for Simon Hughes in the search bar for that article if you haven't signed up to the athletic and you'd like to check this article out if you'd like to see what else it has to offer you can get 40 percent off an annual subscription if you go to theathletic.co.uk forward slash efl pod all one word efl pod that'll get you 40 percent off you can check out simon's piece and everything else it has to offer Next up is the in-focus segment of the podcast. We pick a team each week and normally we try and pick one that we reckon is in quite an interesting, sometimes quite tense situation, either at the top or the bottom end of the league table. We're Literally going a
1: club probably either going up or going down. Sometimes,
0: sometimes, George. What about Middlesbrough? That's who we're looking at this week because it has certainly been a tense few weeks for them off the back of some very poor performances and results against teams down the bottom the gap between themselves and the relegation zone has shrunk considerably George I wanted to ask you your thoughts on Middlesbrough the current situation where they're at and then I'm going to run you through what the fans are saying
1: well as of 1254 on the 27th of February they are currently Jonathan Woodgate's Middlesbrough I wasn't sure if that was necessarily going to be the case when we got to recording time it may not be the case when people are listening to this, it may still be, but he is certainly a manager who seems to be under some pressure. They're on 37 points from 35 games, but if you actually pick apart their season a little bit, from the 27th of November to the 1st of January, they went on a really good run of nine games, winning, winning six, drawing one and losing two. That means 19 of their 37 points to this date came in just nine games. In the other 26 games of the season, they've collected just 18 points. So over the course of the season, over 26 games, taking out that one good run in the middle, that is a 32-point season form. That is absolutely horrific. If you take out those nine games in the middle, this side has been the worst team in the league by absolutely miles. Jonathan Woodgate has been tarnished a little bit by the brush of his own first press conference where he spoke about the style of football that he wanted to play. And I do feel like he's been judged against that, possibly too harshly. I think he was very naive in what he said and I've written down what he said in that first press conference here. So this is Woodgate's quotes. Firstly, I want to pass the ball. Pass the ball, keep the ball. I want players to run with the ball. It's important that when you lose the ball, you win it back as quickly as possible. Obviously, don't go gung-ho. There are times to press and to know when to press. That's my philosophy. That's what I want to do. I want to win games scoring goals. If you look at this league now, you go up you go up by scoring goals. If you don't, you won't go up
0: now. Probably didn't help himself there in
1: hindsight. He hasn't. But the important thing to remember is, irrespective of the start of play, what they've done this season isn't good enough. But when you've had Tony Pulis building a squad to play Pulis ball, as we know it, and you come in as part of his backroom staff and say that in your press conference, it is beyond naive especially when you've never been a manager before, you have absolutely no idea how to make your players. I mean, we take it for granted as football fans that a manager can come in and get players to play the way they want to, but that's got to be pretty difficult. I'm sure if I went in tomorrow to Middlesbrough and started trying to get them to play passing football, I don't think it'd be particularly easy to get guys who've been coached in order to play a certain style to do so. I see your point, but I would, I'd back you. Thanks very much. That's very kind. Steve Gibson, I'm, I'm, I'm just the other end of the phone, but they are 16th in the league for possession, 47.3, which, you know, when you, you, when you get around the 50% mark, it's kind of doesn't really mean too much. But he says that he wants to play passing football. They are 22nd in the league for passes attempted. So even passes attempted, mm. they are third from bottom. They're 18th in the league for accurate short passes. He hasn't made good, good of his promise whatsoever. And in terms of trying to find a team to score goals, they failed in that regard as well. The constant chopping and changing throughout the season, both in terms of personnel and formation, is just symptomatic of a a manager who doesn't know his best side and doesn't know how to approach or how even to get his side out of a rut. They switched to three at the back at the beginning of that good run and the emergence of Spence and Coulson as as wing-backs was really, really key to that run of nine games, which has made sure they're currently out of the relegation zone, as was the return of Ashley Fletcher. But since that run, they've got nine championship games without a win, 4,000 fans, 4,000 fans travelled to Barnsley, the side bottom of the league at the time, and didn't even see their shot. Their, their side have a shot on target. Jed Spence was left out of that game altogether. And Woodgate said of the player that he called up from the academy, who was so crucial to that good run, just two months later, he says, he says listen, Jed's been doing okay, but he needs to do more. He needs to do more. These are young lads and we're, we're in a relegation battle. So sometimes you need people who have been there and done it and really fought. Mm. How a manager... Who's only good spell of the season can say that after the only good spell was after turning to the youth. And him saying at the time that the reason why it was going well, because he turned to players without fear. I understand that he's a manager currently scrambling for his career at a club that he loves. But just the inability to find a settled system, to understand how he wants to play and use the players that he wants to. You've got Johnny Howson, a centre midfielder by trade, who in the last few weeks has played centre back, right back, right wing back, and right wing. Mm. Ayala and Fry are both key, key players for them and they've been injured recently. Lewis Wing is their key goal threat. He does very little apart from just shooting. Looking at the transfer policy of the summer as well, it is baffling how the club has treated certain players. Mark Boller was brought in from Blackpool, played 10 times, did okay, sent out back on loan to Blackpool in January. Marcus Brown brought in from West Ham in the summer, didn't play particularly well for them, has gone to Oxford and he is... As someone who sees Marcus Brown playing every week, the fact that he is contracted to a side who are struggling to score goals at the bottom end of the championship and they have cast him out of the club Mm. is totally unforgivable.
0: The key key bit of context to mention, and I'm not saying that you've left it out on purpose, is that he did get sent off twice at a time where they were in really poor form. You can see as a manager... You know, bear in mind that we're all human. You could see why you might not necessarily want to chuck that person out into the...
1: But when you've got, you've got a young guy playing his first season in the championship, I'd argue that you have to manage him. You have to manage a guy who's got a temper. You have to ensure that he doesn't behave like that. I'd say the f- if you've got a young kid who's 21 and 22 years old playing in the championship for the first time and he's getting sent off twice in the first half of the season, that's not just his failing. He's been mismanaged as well. You look at players they brought in in January, it all looks quite exciting. Uh, Patrick Roberts came in and looked very very bright before he got injured Makoudi's made a decent start despite an own goal and a deflection into his own net Ravel Morrison and Nemecha have come in and struggled to really make an impact as well but in terms of just the performances against Wigan you know they paid three they paid the bottom three in a row and got just one point out of it they had three shots on target in a tall draw against Wigan they had no shots on target against Luton no shots on target against Barnsley as well against Leeds in midweek they were Better, but they still lost the game 1-0, having three shots on target. The first one was a George Savile shot from 35 yards, which was their first shot on on target in over seven halves of football. And the expected goals they project as basically one of the best defensive teams in the league, Um, but their attacking output is... So, so poor. In the last four games before the Leeds match, they had the worst defence, sorry, worst attack in the league and the second best defence. When you've got a manager saying at the beginning of the season that to get out of this league, you have to score goals, the fact they have the worst attack in the league in terms of the underlying data is pretty horrific. The defensive unit, as I mentioned, is operating well. That will be the thing that keeps them up, if anything, and Woodgate definitely, definitely deserves credit for that. But he has to work out a way to get his team scoring again. They have enough attacking talent to do so, even if they may have bombed a couple of those players out in bringing in players like Ravel Morrison and Metcher. You'd think they'd have enough and Fletcher up top as well, but I would just baffled by the fact that he had he stumbled across a winning formula where they were one of the good one of the form teams in the league, and he was so quick to cast them aside after a poor run, and that is a massive issue.
0: You've taken the words out of a lot of the fans. <laughs> mouths. Uh, they're, they're they're all on a similar wavelength. Uh, I sort of split our questions into two. One about the on-pitch goings-on, any relegation concerns, what level of concern, and then an off-the-pitch question asking the fans how they think this has come about. This is a team, of course, that was only in the Premier League uh, three seasons ago. Fuzzy Dunlop, one of our favourite Borough fans on Twitter, serious and growing concern He's pointed to a lack of goals as the main problem, as you have and Yala's injury that's also been an issue at the back. Christopher says, we've looked toothless going forward and, to be honest, just a bit clueless at times. Josh says, I've always been very, very level about Woodgate, but I'm very worried with the fact that the more players we get back from injury, the worse we seem to get. I wanted just to pick up on what you said about chopping and changing all of the time and changing systems at this stage of the season. You can understand why managers do it in order to try and and hit upon a formula that works. But quite interestingly, if you look at the teams around them, even the three teams below them, who clearly have been poor over the course of the season, they're in the relegation zone. But Wigan, Barnsley and Luton, say whatever you like about them this season, their managers have a style of play, have a way of playing, and they stick to it. Now that can be sometimes quite frustrating for fans when things aren't going well and you perceive them to not being to not do enough. They're not doing enough to try and change it. So you can see how it can be a bit of a double-edged sword. But certainly, compared to the teams around them, I'd say at least we all know their style of play. You, you could see the players being quite level-headed and quite well-drilled in that, whereas Borough seemingly changing it up a lot. Joseph, concern at red alert. We look like one of the worst sides in the league at the moment. Woodgate seems out of his depth player recruitment and overall plan have been lacking since 2017. Off the pitch, yeah, same sort of thing. Fuzzy saying, paying for four years of mismanagement, the recruitment strategy, poor ever since relegation, overpaying for players, incoherent strategy, exacerbated by managerial changes. Of course, the more that you chop and change your manager, the less likely you are to have an overarching recruitment strategy um, in place to help you to, to, to... both build a squad, but also rebuild the squad if you need to do that. Josh says, and it's interesting to point out that chairman Steve Gibson, a fan, a local man, he's been chairman for ages and he is a popular man around town, if you will. Josh says, I think we always seem to have the right idea, but execution is always lacking. It feels to me like there's a real lack of modern football leadership at the club, which leaves us lurching from regime to regime. And Ian, lastly, quite an interesting point. Steve Gibson has been at the forefront of the sort of battle against various other clubs in the EFL's um, potential charges and sanctions to do with selling their stadium to themselves. Ian says, Chairman Steve Gibson's seemingly one-man crusade against the bending of rules in the EFL has, according to some, led him to take his eye off the ball at his own club. Whilst his intentions are good and he likely has reasons for such concerns, there does feel to some degree that he's nowhere near as active on the borough front as perhaps he once was. So, look, the reason we picked him is because they're in a really tricky spot at the moment and it's clearly causing a lot of concern amongst the fan base. And hopefully, by looking in focus, we can kind of see where in the short term, but also the mid to long term, how how things have built to the point that we're at now with Middlesbrough.
1: And now it's the bit we've all been waiting for. Ali Maxwell's EFL Rewind. I've noticed a theme that I keep finding kind of funny managerial um, spells and you keep going for players. I'm wondering if you're going to be going down the same lines again here. Maybe the- that's like, an ins- like a bit of an inside scoop into our psyche. I'm more the manager, the coach, and you're more the, more the player.
0: Wow. Well, try and wrap your head around this psyche. I'm not talking about <laughs> a player or a manager. Ooh, wow. George, this week on EFL Rewind... The worst team in the EFL's modern history. And before I start, a shout out to Yeri Peshanovsky for suggesting this over email. <laughs> we don't get many emails, please email but Yeri emailed us nice. about yeah. this. And once he put his case for this being EFL Rewind, it couldn't be ignored. Some of you may know the story of Doncaster Rovers' 1997-98 season, but many of you will not. It's not particularly a funny story. It's a story really of complete masterful mismanagement from a really a criminal owner but some of the details are farcical and they are worth retelling this is the story of the team that suffered the most defeats ever in a football league season their record played 46 won 4 drew 8 lost 34 scoring 30 goals and conceding 127 for a goal difference of minus 93 and just 20 points. What? Now this has been written about a fair amount online, as you can imagine, most notably by Glenn Wilson, who is a Donny fan and writes the stand fanzine that covers the club, and also articles on the two unfortunates, Planet Football and the set pieces. So I must thank them before I begin for their work on this topic. We're going to start with some off the field context, because this isn't just a footballing tragedy. Of course it's not. Millionaire owner Ken Richardson is, the, is in charge here at Donny at this time. And to give you a flavour of the man, in 1982, he was embroiled in a racing scandal when his horse, Flockton Grey, was switched for a race. The horse that it was switched with won by miles at 10 to 1. No. And he was found out. It was a, it was a big scandal and he was banned from racing for 25 years, obviously. <laughs> then he turned his attention to football. First with non-league Bridlington Town.
1: Did he pass the good and proper football uh, uh, person's test?
0: Well, wow, that's a good question. He did in <laughs> non-league Bridlington Town. He bankrolled them in the short term, took them to Wembley, and then extinction. They went out of business. Then he took over Doncaster Rovers. Now, a dispute with the local council came about because Ken tried to sell the land on which Bellevue the stadium stood via an advert in a national newspaper. The land was reportedly valued at £18 million. It was some of the most lucrative of any football ground outside of London. The problem with him putting it up for sale in the newspaper was he didn't own the land, the club didn't own the land, it wasn't his to sell. So the council and Ken have a bit of a falling. Then there's a bit of really unfortunate news, George. One day in 1995, when the stadium is set on fire, causing £100,000 worth of damage, Bellevue in flames and it was arson and who was the arsonist well a chap called alan was hired to start the fire he was paid ten thousand pounds to do so and the police found out pretty quickly who had hired him when they found a mobile phone near the scene which contained a message to ken richardson's number saying the job's been done no way smart guy it's like a soap it really is so supposedly his intention and this is probably being kind was to try and force rovers to move to a new stadium The owner of the club, this is, setting fire to its stadium. That that he doesn't own. That he doesn't own the stadium, correct. Richardson was found guilty and sentenced to four years in jail, but the fire was in 1995. He's not sentenced until March 1999. He still runs the club. He's still in charge, but he's got quite an unusual way of running this football club. They're in what is now League Two, I should point out, because on the one hand, Ken Richardson doesn't appear to have the inclination or perhaps the cash flow to fund a fourth-tier football club to a normal level. But on the other hand, he's still very involved. In fact, too involved. We start the season in August 1997 with Kerry Dixon as the manager. (laughs) First game of the season, they lose 2-1 to Shrewsbury. No shame there. Second game in the League Cup, 8-0 to Forest at home. Next two league games, 5-0 and 3-0 defeats. Kerry Dixon leaves, complaining that Richardson is picking the team. (laughs) A new manager called Colin Richardson, no relation. And then another one called Dave Cowling. They come and go in quick succession, in a matter of weeks, realising... They don't have the autonomy that a normal football manager has, let alone the players or the facilities. And it's clear by now that the season is something of a farce, which is not helped by the fact that Channel 5 are in town with their camera crew filming a documentary about the club. Wow. The documentary is on YouTube. It's called They Think It's All Rovers. It is absolutely sensational. The fourth manager of the season is Danny Bergara, really interesting guy who I feel quite bad for here because... He's got an amazing footballing backstory, plenty of influence before this as a youth team coach in the England setup, and also a legendary manager at Stockport County, gaining two promotions with them and reaching two auto glass trophy finals in six years. One of their stands is still named after him, the Danny Bergara stand. But possibly not helped by the cameras and the situation, Danny doesn't come out of this very well. Two main reasons. One... He's filmed talking to the players before a game, trying to G them up. And he says, remember what Churchill said, never give up. Now, that's not only the wrong (laughs) phrase. That's amazing. But also slightly undermined by, during his big dramatic pause, one of the players muttering, don't know, fight them on the beaches. (laughs) So that doesn't come out very well for Danny, nor does the fact that one of his great schemes to improve results was to Switch the players' numbers round to confuse the opposition. Very shrewd. It, it didn't confuse the opposition. Um, he didn't last that long as the main manager, although he did stay on to help out with the coaching. Worst of all was the man who took over as manager next. This is now the fifth manager of the season. He's called Mark Weaver. He's already at the club in some sort of director of football role. We're not quite sure what the link between him and Ken Richardson was, but the only previous experience that Mark Weaver had in the game was as Stockport's club lottery salesman. So this is not a football man, I think it's fair to say. And all the players (laughs) at the time said, perfectly nice guy, knew absolutely nothing about football. Astoundingly, they win their first game with him in charge, which is also the first win of the season. They follow it up by losing 5-2, 3-0 and 8-0 again. The season unravels. Well, that's what I would say, but that also assumes that it was raveled to start with. Doncaster have four different kits this season. None of them sponsored. The badge on the kit was a rough sketch of the Viking badge that was drawn by a club official after the council said they couldn't use the council's crest, which is what they wanted on the kit.
1: That's insane.
0: Of the 45 players used by Donny in the league that season, here are a few that stand out. Andy Thorpe, who hadn't played professionally for five years. He turned up, played two games and then left. Paddy Wilson, who joined and looked quite lively as a winger in a 2-1 defeat at Cambridge. Fans pretty encouraged about his signing. Within a month, he was in prison for driving whilst disqualified. (laughs) Two players were signed in time for a big game fairly early in the season against Brighton. David Smith and Rod Thornley. Now, they came from the Stockport Sunday League and the Northwest Counties League. Bear in mind, we are in the EFL here. This was their only game as professionals. Rovers lost 3-1 and were reported to the FA for fielding a weakened team. Oh my God. In the positives, well, Prince Moncrief, amazing name, and he was top scorer with eight goals in all competitions. He never played at the level before and he never got another chance, which is quite a sad part to this story. <laughs> I think we need to track down Prince. I think we do too. Ad Mike genuinely did okay. He was a former Man City player. He played. He was a striker, but played a lot of his games at centre back. And Lee Warren became a club legend for his performances, for his character during this spell. Uh, in March, as Glenn Wilson writes in his iconic Twitter thread on the topic, which I will share on our Twitter account at NTT Twenty Pod. In March, the club's coaching staff were laid off for five days. Both of them, I should say. And when they next turned up at the ground, they were given 75 quid each and told to go away. No more coaching, no more training. The players were just turning up for games now. As you'd expect, George, the fans were protesting hard, especially a group called Save the Rovers. But Ken Richardson was shady, I think it's fair to say. And prominent members of the group, Save the Rovers, had been receiving threatening late night calls for the majority of the season. Some of them had had their tyres slashed. By the time Doncaster hosted Rovers, with about five or six games to go, knowing that relegation could be confirmed, and with fans thinking that this club was absolutely nailed on to go out of existence at the end of the season, there was a, a brilliant protest by supporters in an attempt to get some media focus, to get the media to focus on their plight so and right. their issues. One fan staged a sit-in in in the centre circle while another chained himself to the goalpost. (laughs) Of course. Once the game finally got underway, the now legendary Prince Moncrief scored and they won (laughs) 1-0. No way. Staving off relegation, but only for a few more days. It was confirmed a week later with a 2-1 defeat at Chester City. There was a mock funeral by the fans. They went down as the worst team that Football League has seen in its post-war years. A reminder of their record. Played forty-six won four, drew eight, lost 34 with 30 goals scored and 127 conceded, just 20 points from their 46 games. Thankfully, to finish on a positive, instead of folding, as many expected, Rovers were taken over that summer by a new consortium, but not before the madness of two different Doncaster Rovers sides, one under each ownership, playing pre-season friendlies. Of course, Donny went on to spend five seasons in the conference as they licked their wounds as they attempted to recover from the Ken Richardson era. And then they won back-to-back promotions under Dave Penny in the early 2000s to reach League One, where now we've seen themselves kind of established as a uh, certainly as an EFL club. They've been in the Championship League One and League Two in the last decade. As I said, it's not necessarily a funny story, but some of the details are truly farcical. That was Doncaster Rovers 1997 98, the worst team. In the EFL's modern history.
1: Thank you so much, guys, for listening to the Going Up, Going Down podcast brought to you by The Athletic. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we enjoyed making it. All of the Athletics podcasts are completely free, and ad-free versions are available to subscribers. You should subscribe for ad-free versions. You should also subscribe for the brilliant, brilliant written content on there every single day. You can sign up and get a 40% discount now by going. To theathletic.com forward slash EFL pod. We hope that you tune in again next week.